Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Warren Jensen, and Warren is the president for LiveRamp, and he and LiveRamp are in the center of the hottest space in our industry, and we're going to talk about a lot of that. So welcome, Warren. Really glad to have you here. Well, Matt, thank you. It's my pleasure to join you today. Great. So um, I, I want to go back, Warren. You've worked for and with some incredible people, and there are certain companies in our business culture that had both tremendous charismatic leaders and also produced a lot of talent. And I think that's one of the great measures of a leader is that you produce talent who not only stays with you, but who eventually leave and go on to other things. And I want to start by talking about one of those leaders and one of those magic companies. And that was your tenure back at GE earlier in your career. And I'd love your reflections on what it was about the GE culture that made it so special and remembrances of uh, the great Jack Welch, who really defined so much of business culture and incredible leadership for so many years at GE and NBC, of course. You know, that, that's a great place to start, Matt. I, uh, I have incredible memories of working with uh, Jack. And I've got a lot of stories too. Uh, you know, it's pretty interesting. Uh, when I think of a conversation with Jack, he would call often. And whenever the phone would ring and your EA would say, Mr. Welch is on the line, it was always one part sheer terror, uh, but also one part just sheer exhilaration. Uh, when I think about what I learned from Jack, I'd kind of highlight maybe a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'd say, I just learned how to think. I learned how to see an issue, see an opportunity, pick it apart, and then solve for an optimal outcome. You know, that could be a problem or that could be a deal. Secondly, something that's a little more intangible, I guess all these are intangible, is just really how to think about leadership. Uh, Welch had an incredible ability to create an environment that allowed you to go accomplish things that you never dreamed were possible. Uh, you know, I often say that, you know, I feared failure, but I would tell you working with Jack, I never was afraid to fail. The best part about being a boss is, is growing people. It is the thrill of all time. Give stock options, then watch the company win and watch the people light up as they watch their lives change. I mean, I had such kicks over that. I like to watch these guys that are out there now who work for me running companies. It's an enormous thrill. The hardest part of a job are making the ugly decisions. Letting somebody go. Awful. And that's why you can never surprise them. You gotta always be appraising them. They gotta know where they stand. Every time, if, if, if you've got any manager watching the show, 
and they aren't thinking about, do my people know where they stand? Have I told them candidly how I feel about what I like about them and what they need to improve? Then they shouldn't be a manager. Because once you're a manager, it's about them, not about you. And that's become so endemic in our culture now where no one ever wants to admit when they're wrong. And I think there's something missing in business. I think we're worse because of it, that it's okay. If you're going to try a lot of things, you're going to make some mistakes and someone has to be accountable for those mistakes. Yeah, I, I think accountability is a big deal, but I also think there's one part learning. Uh, you know, as you were just chatting there for a second, I remember, you know, a particular deal. I was CFO at NBC and uh, the 90s were just filled with all kinds of transactions in, in effect. Now, I just did several deals during the course of those years. And we had one transaction, which we just, and I did, I just massively overplayed our hand. Uh, and needless to say, we didn't get the deal. And about two weeks later, my phone rings, Jack Welch is on the other end of the line. And it was not about the mistake I made. It was about what did I learn from the deal? And he had an incredible way of saying, okay, you know what? We made a mistake on that one, but there are going to be other opportunities in front of you. Now, what are you going to go do? Dialing back a little bit, I know you had a master's from Brigham Young. And, you know, at a pretty young age, you were CFO of EA. And you're the only guy I know who's won every CFO award there is to win. You sort of won the Kentucky Derby of CFO awards several times. And I don't know anybody else who's in that category. When you were starting out your career after school, clearly accounting was something that you had a proclivity for, but did you see yourself as a CFO? Is that the direction you thought you'd go in? I would say I always felt a desire for leadership. And even though my training was classically in accounting, and then I had a master's in accountancy as well from BYU, I always tried to approach every problem that was ever in front of me or every circumstance from a business perspective. And I think that served me very well. So right out of college in public accounting, I started to do a tremendous amount of M&A work. And in effect, believe it or not, inside of a public accounting firm, we had a little M&A boutique. Uh, and for me, that then led to a job that you know you, you wouldn't, I wouldn't have ever thought of was to go to GE and and be one of two people leading M&A. So I would say no, you know, you kind of see where things take you in your career. But you know, for me, it was always about focusing on the business opportunity in front of me and not necessarily on a particular function. Fantastic. And you've also worked, Warren, for some real blue chip marquee companies. We talked about GE, um, but you were also at Delta. We mentioned EA and Amazon. Reflecting back on all of those tenures, is there something that you took away in particular from each that was unique that helps you today in your much more expansive role at LiveRamp? A hundred percent. And I could go through every step in my career at every company and talk about the learnings that I had at each. For example, at the time when I went to Delta, and I was there for a relatively short period of time before going on to Amazon, I oftentimes said to folks, I could have spent another 12 years at GE, and I would have never learned what I learned at Delta in 18 months. 
So I learned about, you know, a big business that had a ton of capital, had volatile fuel prices and had, you know, something like 80,000 employees and how you manage. Those lessons were absolutely invaluable. When I think about my time at Amazon and working with Jeff, you know, something that comes to mind for me is just focusing on the things that really matter. And Jeff did it then and he does it today. You know, and that started with an absolute relentless focus on the customer. And then I'd say the second thing was really, you know, sticking to your knitting and focusing on your business model. Uh, the business model at, at Amazon hasn't really changed and they continue to execute extremely well. Yeah, no, they sure do. Did you live down in Atlanta when you were with Delta? I did. Did you like Atlanta? Atlanta's a great city. Yeah, I went to school at Emory. I love it. I used to have a real fondness for Atlanta. For a Jewish boy from Queens, I sure loved all that good Southern food. Yeah, nothing like pulled pork. No, I loved it. We used to what real barbecue sauce is. Oh, it's just just great. We used to go to Thelma's Kitchen downtown, and very memorable. Uh, and I was used to go to Reggie's Tavern. It was when CNN was in the Omni. When I was young, I could keep up with all my Southern friends and drink with them. And we were there when, as an, I was a 19-year-old intern, when the Georgia Dome was an idea on a bar napkin. When Billy Payne first came and you know raised the idea of trying to bring the Olympics to Atlanta, it's a great, great city. So, how many uh, late nights at Waffle House? Oh, many, scattered, smothered, and covered. I, I love, I love Waffle House. Absolutely, raisin toast. You can't beat it. So, how did you get to Amazon and Jeff from Atlanta and Delta? It was an interesting time. I had started to get involved with the internet the last years of my time at NBC. And I had the opportunity to go be CFO of this big company, Delta Airlines. So we packed up the truck and headed to, to Atlanta. During the time at, at Delta, we also started to focus on a lot of things in the internet because the internet was just really starting to form and, and it hadn't really exploded yet. So, you know, a good example of you know, one of the things that we did was we really struck the groundbreaking partnership with Priceline. And, you know, my numbers are going to be a little bit off, but we took 20% of the company and, and we had Delta pretty much put Priceline on the map. None of the other airlines were really willing to deal with them. And we instead embraced the change and said, okay, how can we work with you to benefit both our companies? And we took uh, 20% of the company, we thought, well, you know what, maybe that'll be worth a few bucks someday. And I'll never forget one of my work colleagues that was working with me on the deal came in and he said, you know what, we just talked to Morgan Stanley and you're not going to believe it, but they say this steak is probably worth 50 million bucks. And I go, great. Then next day he came in, he said, you're not going to believe it. They're telling us this steak is worth a hundred million. And long and short, this kind of went up by day or by week and $100 million increments. And just as a piece of trivia, I think that investment ended up being worth more than a billion dollars for Delta Airlines. But it really just, I guess, coming back to your question, it came back to me for really watching how the internet was unfolding. And I honestly felt, you know, I'd been incredibly fortunate, as you mentioned in my career, and had some really big opportunities at a relatively young age. And, you know, and I thought about sort of change that had taken place in business and during different times with, you know, factory automation, for example. And I honestly felt that I was kind of at a place in my career where I could continue doing what I was doing, 
or I could actually jump in to the change that was really starting to take place. And I felt that if I wasn't willing to really jump in, that I just might miss out on the opportunity and really understanding it. And so there was probably no better place and no better opportunity to you know, do something like that than going to Amazon.com. And that was about right around the very end of the 1990s? Yes. That time, a lot of the big, big brands that were the early players in the internet, very few of them survived. I mean, you go back and you look at that period, you look at brands like Alta Vista and Lycos and Disney's investment in Go, so many others, and probably the greatest mistake in business that I know of when Yahoo had a chance a few years later to buy Google for a song and passed. What was it about Amazon that enabled it to really, really succeed, I think, beyond anyone's expectations, especially the last several years? Did you see things and attributes in the company then that you said, this guy's going to make it, this company's going to make it? Oh, I don't know that I would have been, you know, that smart to say, gee, I saw attributes in the company, you know, this, this and that. But what I would say is I think Amazon had several things going for it. First of all, it was in a great big market, obviously, that has only just gone crazy over the last two decades called e-commerce. Uh, the second thing I think, which is really pivotal, I'll come back to just focus is everything was about the customer. And as you know, in the early days, it was Amazon.bomb, is Amazon going to go bankrupt? And I remember, I think it was Jeff on CNBC, when Jeff made the point that, you know what, you can say whatever you like, but do you use our service? And of course, the commentators would say, yeah, I love it. And that was just the point. The customers absolutely loved the service. Who are you? I'm Jeff Bezos. And what, are your, what is your claim to fame? <laughs> I'm the founder of Amazon.com. They say one of the toughest things to do on the internet is to capture mind share. What was your secret? How did you do that? One of the ways that you can do that, and it's the way that we did it, was by doing something new and innovative for the first time that actually has real value for the customer. That's a hard thing to do, but if you do do that, then newspapers will write about you, what you're doing. Customers will tell other customers, and you'll get a huge sort of word of mouth fan out. And, and that can really drive and accelerate businesses. And that's what happened with us. In the first year of opening Amazon.com to the public, we didn't do any paid advertising. And all of our growth was fueled by word of mouth and media exposure. And then I would say two other things which were highly relevant to uh, Amazon in those early days that I think continue to benefit the company to this day is in very short order, despite all the growth and all the craziness, the company and its leadership team just became incredibly good and disciplined operationally. My words is we got a control of the knobs and we knew what to turn which way in order to create a very specific result. And that was pivotal. The second thing is, you know, the company wasn't afraid of change. You know, we started off doing pure e-commerce, but then the capital markets closed in, you know, call it the year 2000. And there was a tremendous importance on becoming really financially independent, meaning getting to cash flow positive. And I think rough terms, company was starting out at negative 25% operating margins. 
and in 18 months went to cash flow positive. That didn't happen because of you know big, huge cost cuts. It came by thinking about what was the asset and how to better take advantage of it. You know, and I'll give you two examples of revolutionary change that people thought was almost crazy in those years. So we had this big e-commerce platform. eBay had, you know, used merchandise. Our competitive answer to eBay was something called Z Shops, but nobody wanted to go to Z Shops. They all wanted to go to eBay. That's where the network was. And so as a leadership team, the comment was, well, if our mission is come find, discover, buy anything online, why not put used merchandise next to the new merchandise on the website? And if that's a good idea, why don't we then let local merchants sell new merchandise next to ours? And you know, isn't that also consistent with the mission? And so those were two you know, really good examples of revolutionary change that nobody would have ever dreamed up in traditional retail, you know, that changed the whole equation. All of a sudden, in very short order, something like 25% of the volume was being driven by third-party sales. And obviously, those sales had very different margin characteristics. From there, it led to thinking about the platform differently. So it was, gee, if we have this great e-commerce platform, why not let Toys R Us or Target take advantage of the platform? So I would uh, also say, you know, relentless focus on the customer, thinking long-term, sticking to the business model, but becoming operationally incredibly good, and then just not being afraid to change. I love that business juxtaposition of terms, control the knobs. I think that that, that paints a, a wonderful picture. So you worked side by side with two of the great business leaders this country's ever produced. Were there things about Jeff and Jack that were similar, things that were vastly different as you reflect back on both of them? I think they, you know, there's all kinds of similarities. I would say both were incredible leaders when their own rights were incredibly visionary. Something that I think was also true of both individuals, they were incredibly long-term. When we would, you know, come back to learning how to think from Jack Welch, it was always about winning in the long term, and it was never about a short term result per se. Of course, we had margin targets and we wanted to deliver against our investor expectations, but it was always about the long term. If I were to say, at least in my mind, two differences, I would call Jack an absolute operator. I would call Jeff a visionary. Amazing. Somewhat uniquely, you had a real entrepreneurial spirit for someone who been, I'm not going to call you a traditional CFO because you're not a traditional guy, but you had a steady run of big, big, high profile CFO gigs. So let's uh, shift gears and I want to focus on LiveRamp. And you started there as a CFO and EVP and charge of tech operations and head of international when it was Axiom. How'd you get there? And I'd love to talk about that journey deal, uh, the sale, and ultimately the uh, birth, rebirth, if you will, of LiveRamp? Well, it's kind of interesting for me, Matt. I've always been attracted to things that are on the edge of change. I, even my time at NBC, things were going crazy in the broadcast world in the 90s. Amazon is you know, very clear, but even the airline business was going through a lot of change. I then went to Electronic Arts 
And you just started to see the explosion of online and digital. I look back and things that are so apparent today, you're actually taking place in 15 years ago. Things like user-generated content, microtransactions, esports. These were big deals in 2004 in China and places like Korea. I've always, again, just been attracted to things like that, that I thought were on the precipice of doing something really big. And I, I guess in my words, I'd say I like doing kick-ass things with kick-ass people that can change the world. And so now what brings me to LiveRamp? About, I guess it was eight or so years ago, I joined the leadership team at Axiom. And Axiom was an old line data company with really sticky, big relationships with about 50% of the Fortune 100. What we thought we could do at Axiom was we thought Axiom, even though it was a relatively slow growth service company, we thought it could be basically the company that brought together the worlds of on and offline marketing. So that's what we set out to do. And we pretty much said, you know what, this is our digital transformation of this company. A few years in, we bought a company called LiveRamp, which is, was the category creator and really data activation, identity, and onboarding. And this was a very young, high-growth SaaS platform. We paid a lot for it in terms of relative valuation. Of course, our investors hated it, and we just got crushed when we announced the deal. But we took this little SaaS asset inside of Axiom, and we grew it, and we nurtured it. Fast forward three or four years, we then came to a place where we announced to the market, I guess, pretty much two and a half years or so ago, that we were going to look at strategic alternatives for Axiom. And we did that, and we ended up selling Axiom to IPG, and basically LiveRamp emerged as the public company. I say to folks, sometimes it works, and this one really worked. We really transformed a company from basically a service company to high-growth SaaS, and, and that's LiveRamp today. Tell us, you know, we, you and I bump into each other in, uh, let's assume that we're traveling again one day, and we bump into each other in the lounge at Heathrow, and we don't know each other. Tell me about LiveRamp. I would tell you, I guess, a few things. First of all, you know, if you ask me, like, what's LiveRamp do? I would say we're a SaaS platform that enables great customer experiences. So in essence, we help brands use data to get closer to their customers. The second thing that I would then probably start to tell you about is what we see going on in the world today and what is incredibly exciting. I'd argue something that is really, really pivotal to digital transformation in almost any company. And that's really what's going on in data collaboration. And let me maybe spend a minute and I'll tell you what I'm talking about. So think about a brand creating a customer-friendly data network with all of its trusted suppliers. And the origins of this idea really came out of by thinking about Amazon's ecosystem. Amazon's not a, simply about a data-driven relationship by virtue of visiting the website. Think of Amazon Associates, the network of data connections it has with its CPG partners, what it's doing with third-party merchants. And so we started to ask ourselves, how do you really recreate that sort of network for a traditional retailer, for example? In essence, creating a customer-friendly data network 
with all of its trusted suppliers. So for a retailer, this is about saying, gee, I'm a retailer. You know, how do I now network my sphere of influence and really revolutionize my relationships with my entire supply chain and bring them into partnership? And in my view, this is absolutely a competitive necessity for any company operating in the world in which we live today. If your data-driven customer relationships are not better than that of your nearest competitor, you're going to get behind. You know, data is the key to great customer relationships. Harnessing the power of your network is key to competitiveness for the long term. No question. So without getting either one of us in trouble, we read every day about another either public entity in this U.S. or in Europe, EU, particularly aggressive. And it seems like the era of self-regulation for the big boys in Silicon Valley may be coming to an end and that the runway is getting a lot shorter and it all centers around data and privacy. What's your take looking at what the Justice Department, and that may change in two months, but sure seems like there is a lot stirring and especially as younger legislators get in, it seems like guys like Chuck Grassley still think the internet is AOL dial-up. I think that's very much been in favor for uh, Google and Facebook in particular. The lack of fundamental knowledge about how this stuff works by our policymakers, I think, has helped them enormously, almost comically so. What's your take on that, Warren? I'd say, first of all, we partner with all the large walled gardens, but in, in saying they're great partners. Uh, that said, there are a few things that I think are critical. First of all, we believe in a level playing field. We have to have a level playing field that is important to our global economy, to on, entrepreneurs everywhere. Two, we believe in interoperability. We all have to be able to operate on the internet and operate digitally and it should not favor only a handful of companies. Third is, I'll come back to a statement I you know, made just a minute ago about the criticality of data-driven customer relationships. That cannot solely be the property of three or four companies around the world. It has to be basically a fundamental right and capability of every company in the world, or by definition, we're just going to hand over the keys to a few as opposed to, to many. So, uh, and then finally, I would say, you know, all in that context, you know, it is all about privacy. It's all about transparency. Those are fundamentals that everybody has to honor. And we try to build into every single thing we do at, at LiveRamp. I want to get to that. I want to get to your work in, I guess we'll call it the post cookie world and creating both figuratively and literally a safe haven. But just to stay where we were for a second, when we started Advertising Week in 2004, you know, none of these subjects that we're talking about now existed. They weren't even lesser issues. They didn't exist at all. And Facebook was on the Harvard campus and YouTube was launched in 2007. Google was around. Uh, I remember Gmail was introduced our first year to considerable skepticism, which is somewhat comical in, in retrospect. And I give both the companies enormous credit and we've been with them at times when things went south, when there were real data breach problems concurrent with Advertising Week in both Europe and in New York. And I think we've seen people step up and take responsibility. But I think the awareness of this issue 
from a regulatory vantage point, you know, I think it's an interesting time for everybody, but a level playing field, certainly, I couldn't agree with you more how important that is. Yeah. And I think, I guess the only other, other point I'd make, Matt, is, you know, we kind of chat about it is our philosophy is it's all about privacy. We don't try to work around privacy. We embrace it. So in everything we do, it, it is really all in, about embracing transparency, permissions, and privacy for the consumer. So looking ahead, as you sort of sit in the center of this space, I'd love to hear about some of the things that you're working on, uh, including a global rollout for your authenticated traffic solution in what will soon be a post-cookie world. It's pretty interesting. One of the things that makes LiveRamp very unique is we say we're Switzerland. We're neutral. We're not an agency. We don't buy and sell media. We simply want to be infrastructure for the ecosystem. And as Google made its announcements, and actually we've been working on it for several years, we thought there would come a time where the cookie just outlived its usefulness. You know, it was very important in the early days of the internet. Nobody ever saw where it would actually go, but we knew that over time, there just needed to be a better mousetrap. And so I guess probably going back now, well over two years ago, we started working on something that we call the authenticated traffic solution. And it was basically about a way that a brand could work directly with a publisher and where a permission would exist with the consumer at the brand level and a permission would exist at the publisher level and you could actually connect the two. So do away, in effect, with the need for a cookie. The great news is that the authenticated traffic solution has been embraced by many in the industry, and we just had a tremendous amount of success with it. I think we have over 250, something like that, global publishers that are signed on today. We can reach literally 90% of the audience in the U.S. today using the authenticated traffic solution. So we're pretty much at a place where we've reached critical masks and that if the world needed to snap away from the cookie into something independent today, uh, meaning the authenticated traffic solution, we could do that. Fantastic. Is there competition for you in that particular space or is this a piece of territory that you've created that you stand upon somewhat uniquely? I don't look at it. We don't look at it as territory or competition. We embrace the ecosystem. We partner with everybody. And quite frankly, Matt, we give it away. We think this is something that is critical for our overall industry. It's just the capability that's critical for our industry to flourish. So we actually give it away. So it's great for anybody that embraces it. I would also say the beauty of the solution is the results have been the the return on sales is higher with authenticated traffic solution than it is with comparable tests with cookies and publishers make more money too. So we just look at it as a fundamental capability for the industry. So we don't think about it as competing with anyone. This is just solution that will help make our ecosystem work better. So as the uh, water rises, all boats rise with it. Correct. Yeah. I want to get to safe haven, but in between, you're running a pretty big operation during an incredibly bizarre time in our lives. How has it been for you culturally, a guy that was traveling back and forth, San Fran, London, everywhere else in the world in between? How has it been for you to keep your spirits up 
first, and then in turn, your home family and your business family? That's a, such a good question. I don't know if you're like me, but probably every conversation that I start with and have for the last, call it since March 15th or so, it started with how are you doing? And just in COVID, like what's going on? Today, we're all talking about how many people are at the airports, given where we are in this cycle of COVID. We're all thinking about it. We're all trying, still, I think, in many ways, trying to figure it out. From a business perspective, uh, we've been very fortunate at LiveRam. We've grown every single quarter uh, throughout this very difficult time. Secondly, when it comes to things like ATS and our safe haven platform, which is our data collaboration platform, what we're finding is that if you were to take the top 100 companies in the world, look at their three-year strategic plans, there are two words that are virtually in every one of those plans, and they're the words digital transformation. For many, what's happening is the combination of ATS and safe haven are actually pretty important for their digital transformation. So people and brands are using this time to actually accelerate. The second thing that's happened, probably the thing I should have mentioned first, is obviously in this period, everything is just happening that much faster. Things that people thought would take two years to happen are happening in two quarters. Things that our clients thought would happen over five years are happening in 12 months. And so there's just a lot of change afoot. And fortunately, we're in a position where our technology is really core to many of those digital transformation initiatives. On a personal level, I like probably a lot of people who may be listening to this podcast and you met it, I try to get out. You know, I try to spend time for myself, try to spend time with my family. And I think it's more important than ever that you set aside time for yourself. I try to take you know, a little time in the morning pretty much every day to do my own sort of spiritual meditation where I'm just thinking about things and me as a person. I try to get out and be active physically. So, you know, my workout's a big deal. And then I really try to take time to enjoy not only the people at my home, but all the people with whom I work as well. Have you done things for the company, for all the young people in particular, to try to instill the culture that you have in the live environment when you can't all be together? I think we pretty much do a lot of the things that, you know, everybody's doing. We have regular town halls. We have regular social gatherings. We take days off to give people a break. We are spending a lot of time inside the company talking about diversity and inclusion and belonging and really trying to you know do our part to be better as company, but also make our society better as well. So we try to do nice little personal things try to give people time off, give people the help they need to make it through challenging time if they need that. But also we are really, again, as a company trying to do the right things to continue to build a strong company, which will enable all of our associates to have a great career at LiveRamp and a career path to growth as well. Yeah, I'm very encouraged by leaders like yourself who are embracing that both sides of the coin, the digital transformation side, but also the business transformation side and the consciousness that we're all part of a world and, and it's our obligation and I would submit our opportunity to try to help make the world a little bit better along the way. Oh, 100%. You made me think of something. I, I have a little interview 
test. You know, like you just say, how do I hire somebody? I have like four or five things that I always look for. And my last thing that I always say is, is the go to dinner test. And I never hire anybody that I want to go have dinner with. The reason for that is we all spend so much time together. Sure. And whether it's now virtually or in person. And the reason why I thought of that is it comes right down to our social obligation. You know, where do we spend the lion's share of our day? We spend it inside of our companies. And at the end of the day, you want to work for a company that shares your values and you want to work for a company that you demonstrates the values in which you believe. And we work very hard at LiveRamp to do that every day. And that, and that shows, I see it with all the people and your team that we deal with that really manifests itself. Okay, so we talked about ATS. We have to talk about Safe Haven. Safe Haven is a SaaS platform basically that allows permission-based data collaboration at scale. And maybe I can give a, an example of why we think this is a big deal. So data collaboration or data sharing between trusted brands has been around for decades. And I'll go back to Delta Airlines. Um, Delta Airlines did code share. So it was code share in Delta's case, say with Air France. If you were at United, it was Lufthansa. What made code share work is that, first of all, and most importantly, it was great for the consumer. You and I, when we went and looked at a travel schedule, we liked having the expanded routes mapped directly into our alternatives. So it really was very, you know, started with the consumer. It was a great thing. But then the second thing is that it was also good for all the participants. In the case of Delta and Air France, both Air France and Delta did better. And as we thought about building the safe haven platform, we thought about really few things. First of all, it has to be super consumer friendly. You do this in order to create better data-driven experiences for your customers. It's, it starts with that. Then two, it was how do you do this at scale and not do it in a one-off sort of service-oriented relationship? You create a platform where you could do this with it at scale. I'll use retail again as the example. A retailer doesn't have one CPG partner. They have hundreds, if not thousands. So how do you create this network between a brand and its entire supply chain and its network of partners to better serve your customers and then do it at scale? And that's uh, Safe Haven. Fantastic. As you look into your Warren Jensen crystal ball at 21 and, and beyond, I know you're a long-term thinker. What do you think we'll be talking about we do this again in a year. I think, and I'm a little bit biased toward what we're doing, honestly, with Safe Haven and data collaboration. I think we're going to be talking about how brands everywhere are using technology to close the gap with the walled gardens. I hope we're talking about the demise of the cookie and a better solution. I hope we're talking about global competitiveness and a level playing field with interoperability. Mm -hmm and to a better future. And I would think, I mean, enough people, if, you know, a lot of smart people say the same thing, generally it's true. And uh, the notion of accelerated pace of change driven by the last six, eight months, who knows where all that's going to put us a year from now. I agree. I come back. It's kind of a hallmark for me and my career is, you know, I just have never been afraid of change. I actually love it. And I feel all these changes, you know, some are a little bit daunting. Growth is never linear. 
<laughs> and change doesn't always work your way. But we're just very fortunate to live in a time where technology is our ally and it's creating all kinds of new opportunities for our companies and for each of us as individuals. And you couldn't ask for anything more. Fantastic. And just to close, War, you've traveled all over the world. You've lived in some of the great cities in the world. If you could put yourself anywhere right now, what's the old Bewitch show and you could blink and, and put yourself anywhere or Star Trek, if you were a Star Trek fan, you could beam yourself somewhere. Where would you like to be right now? Oh boy, I'd kind of like to be, I guess, everywhere because I, I do miss the opportunities to be in every corner of the world with all kinds of different people. And you know, again, the great news is through Zoom, we're all talking like as you and I are, are today. I think, though, I always sort of say, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what came to mind when you raised that question without even thinking. And I kind of feel like I'd like to be right where I am today, sitting with my family. I feel as hard as this virtual world is and as jam-packed and nonstop as it just seems our days become with just one Zoom call after another, after another, until you about fall over. This has been, I've never spent so much time at home. You know, I've never spent so much time with my wife. I've never had that kind of luxury in the course of my career. So as much as I long for going out to dinner in London or enjoying Paris or Shanghai or Tokyo or wherever life may take me, right where I am today is a really great place. I guess we go back to Judy Garland and there's no place like home, right? No place like home. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com.